Uh, my name is Rob Plummer, and I teach Greek and New Testament here. And um, I just to give you a little background before we begin, I um, am married, and I have a two-year-old daughter, and I have another daughter on the way. It's due in July, so my life is busy and blessed. And um, we're going to talk today in this session in uh, how do the different gospel writers portray Jesus. And this is a topic that was given to me. I might have worded it a little differently, but we're going to uh, we're going to tackle this question, and I've given you a very extensive handout. The handout is like 10 typewritten single-space pages. There's no way we're going to get through that. We're going to get through maybe half of it, but hopefully the half we get through will show you where I'm going and my broad understanding and answering this question. Be sure you get the copy of the handout in the back as you come in, and uh, we'll provide you the resources you'll need for your own study if you continue to explore this question. So... Um, we'll cover the main points, but, but in terms of illustrating it through the different Gospels, we'll probably get through two of the four. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, go into the question. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these students, these people who've come from many, many different directions, and I pray for them that you would make them faithful disciples at their colleges in places where the name of Christ is not honored many times, and the Bible is derided. I pray that they would be people who hold fast to the truth of the gospel, that their lives would be uh, an aroma of life and love, that there would be an engaging sincerity and truthfulness about them that would draw others to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first of all, in answering the question, how do the different gospel writers portray Jesus? The question alone betrays something, doesn't it? It betrays that we acknowledge the different gospel writers do portray Jesus and facts uh, in during his ministry slightly differently, in some ways differently. So we realize that you know uh, we have four gospels. We don't have uh, we have four accounts of Jesus' life. We don't simply have one. When I was doing missions work in Jerusalem, the um, uh, this a Muslim. I was debating with this Muslim imam sitting in the street, and he's like, you know, you have. You have this, John's Gospel, you have Matthew, you, have, you don't have, we have one, we have the Quran. And I said, well, if you know the title of the Gospels, actually, be sure you pick up a handout in the back. The title of the, of the Gospels is actually each one, the Gospel according to John, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to... So even in the title, it recognizes there's a unity even among a diversity of witnesses. I know you, you can, don't be afraid, you can sit up back here, or you can sit on the couch, wherever you want to sit. Be sure you get a handout when you come in. I'm going to say that about 20 times, okay? But even among the early church, post-New Testament church, there's a recognition that there's a unity and diversity among the Gospels. Even in the second century, there was a, a, a famous church leader named Tatian who took all the Gospels and he took the format of the Gospel of John and he wrote a harmony where he put, put all the different stories and information among them, sort of harmonized them, right? And even among these early church fathers, they had discussions, you know, this is not a modern, it's not like suddenly someone said, you know, 50 years ago, well, look, John seems to say that the, the Passover occurred on a different date from Matthew. I mean, these are things that were discussed hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Augustine and did, discussed in great detail the differences among the Gospels and how they present Jesus. So we're not the first ones on the scene to do this. I think to understand how the Gospels present Jesus differently, we need to understand what the intent of the Gospel writers 
was and uh, and how they structure the gospel. Why, so we're getting to the underlying foundational issue to explain, rather than looking at particular examples. Well, why does Jesus present this way here? Why does he present? Let's look at the under underarching, you know, the undergirding concern about what the gospel writers are trying to do and how they did that. Let's talk on your sheet, step one, understanding the genre of the gospels, what the gospels are not. Okay, first of all, what the gospels are not, it's important to understand they're not video footage, right? If you, if you sat down and just read through everything, they said, well, it would take maybe four or five hours to read through all the stories about Jesus if you just collated them and, and cut out all the ones that are, that, are, uh, repeti- that are the same story. So Jesus did a lot more than, than four or five hours of, of ministry and teaching, right? And, uh, and we're, from looking at the Gospel of John, it appears that he did at least three years of ministry. And so we, have, we don't have a video footage of everything he said and did, right? Secondly, what the Gospels are not, they're not chronological accounts. And sometimes uh, Christians, when they first hear this, they kind of struggle. Well, no, it, doesn't it seem, it just seems to, I mean, there is a broad chronological thing. Some of the Gospels report Jesus' birth. And they report his ministry, a lot of it in Galilee, and then they report his death and resurrection, right? Those things did occur. His ministry, uh, earthly ministry, occurred before his death and resurrection. But in terms of the particular order, if you, if you purchase something called a gospel synopsis, which lays out the gospels and their accounts side by side, you can see where Mark may give us the story, story one, story two, story three. Matthew may have the same thing, story three. Story one, story two, exact same story. So, so it appears they're not pre- intended to be chronological. For someone who still questions this, I just refer you to the temptation narratives and the citations given here on your sheet, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. You can see the temptations in Matthew go first with the temptation to convert, to make stones into bread, then to, to jump from the temple, then to uh, Satan saying, worship me on the high mountain. Luke has a different order for those, bread, high mountain, temple. And you say, well, you know, why would Luke rearrange, or Matthew, re- why would they rearrange the order of that? Well, for Luke's gospel, the temple is very important. I mean, and so uh, the, the, Jesus, the, the, in many ways, the, the gospel begins in the temple. And, uh, and then you, you look at, even in the book of Acts, the early disciples are, uh, are gathering together still, it says, in the temple. And so this is a theme that Luke is dealing with. And so he, to highlight it, he rearranges the order. And, and this is, you know, we need to recognize that that is the case. And when we do, it's, it's not a problem because it's not intended to be presented chronologically. In fact, the early church recognized this. Papias, who knew, it appears, John the Apostle, calls him John the Presbyter. This is a quote from Papias, an early church father. And John the Presbyter also said this, Mark being the interpreter of Peter. So Mark wrote down what Peter said. Whatsoever he recorded, he wrote with great accuracy, but not, however, in the order in which it was spoken and done by the Lord. Right? So if you, and you can read the quote in more detail, but even among the early Christians, it was widely recognized the Gospels are not intended to be chronological. And if you look at the facts, that just can't be supported. There's a broad chronological sweep, but not all the details. And last of all, the Gospels are not myth. This is probably the dominant understanding of the Gospels in secular uh, institutions. When I, I went to a secular undergraduate school, and that's kind of the way that the Gospels were talked of there. Has anyone taken a religion class where the Gospels are presented as myth, right? And uh, the idea here, you have to, it, it's got to be one, one of either two ways. Uh, first of all, the way that was dominant in a more rationalistic period that's not dominant anymore is, is the disciples were simple people, fishermen and 
they misunderstood a lot of stuff. You know, Jesus had this dynamic personality, and, you know, people who, who were withered and sick, they just seemed to bloom when he was around them. And so, so you know, what, how do we describe that? We're simple people. They, they, he healed them, you know, and, and it was foggy one night, and he was walking along the shore. It's like he was walking on water, you know. But after a while, this, this becomes pretty unconvincing. You, you, the disciples were, were, must have been complete idiots to either misunderstand everything that Jesus did and cast it in a supernatural light. So more dominant now is the idea that, you know, the disciples, this was the language and the culture of their time. They're trying to explain how great Jesus is and how great a religious figure, figure he is by using mythological language. We're not supposed to understand he really walked on water. We're not supposed to understand that he really was raised from the dead. But how do you say someone's really great in that culture and they're really a huge religious figure unless you say he was raised from the dead, he walked on water? Of course, of several problems with this. One problem is that it's, it appears that all of the readers of the Gospels for 1,700 years misunderstood they were supposed to be narrative. So we're saying, first of all, the apostles cat, uh, supposed to be myth. They cast it as a myth, but everyone understood it as historical narrative until the period of rationalism, right? So they, they uh, and also it, it pictures the apostles as people who've given us the greatest ethical teaching in the history of the world as being, some, in some sense, deceivers. They presented Jesus as doing and saying things that he didn't actually do. I think C.S. Lewis really gets at the root when he says, at, at prima facie reading, just looking at what it is, this material, this, these literary works are not mythological. The quotation on your sheet from C.S. Lewis, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that none of them is like the Gospels. And really what drives, what drives the labeling of the Gospels as myth is not, a, I, I'm convinced, not a literary genre decision, but it's a truth judgment. It's a truth judgment. And what, what's really what the underlying presupposition is, the underlying presupposition is miracles can't happen. So here we have literature that reports all kinds of miracles and supernatural things, which obviously couldn't happen. Therefore, but what we're in this Christian tradition, and there must be some value to these works. I mean, they've been celebrated for 2,000 years now. What is the value? Well, we'll just say they're mythical, that these our stories represent things. And so that really, I think, is, is what, what drives the labeling of, the, of myth, which, which contradicts the evidence of the materials themselves, that they're presented as historical narrative and not as myth. And uh, you can really get at the root issue of this by... by probing questions with someone, someone says, well, I think the virgin birth is just a myth. You know, it's just, it's just intended to convey Jesus' supernatural origin as a, as a teacher from God. You could say, well, you could ask the question, well, how exactly would it have, have to have been written? Like, if you could write a paragraph right now, how would the gospel author have to have written it to convince you that it's intended to be understood factually and not as myth? And then they would probably say, well, there's no way. Many people, I think, would say, well, that's a silly question because these, we can't have a virgin birth. I can't intend to. So that really the underlying presupposition is that can't happen, and that's driving, that's driving the, the judgments about it. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, Paul is quite clear that, uh, that we're not to understand the supernatural events in the gospel as simply a wish fulfillment or as desires. Uh, in verse 14, he said, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if the Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so we see that underlying presupposition is, the underlying presupposition is miracles can't happen. So here we have literature that reports all kinds of miracles and supernatural things, which obviously couldn't happen. Therefore, but, but we're in this Christian tradition and there must be some value to these works. I mean, they've been celebrated for 2,000 years now. What is the value? Well, we'll just say they're mythical, that these our stories represent things. And so that really, I think, is, is what, what drives the labeling of, the, of myth, which, which contradicts the evidence of the materials themselves that they're presented as historical narrative and not as myth. And uh, you can really get at the root issue of this by... by probing questions with someone, someone says, well, I think the virgin birth is just a myth. You know, it's just, it's just intended to convey Jesus' supernatural origin as a, as a teacher from God. You could say, well, you could ask the question, well, how exactly would it have, have to have been written? Like, if you could write a paragraph right now, how would the gospel author have to have written it to convince you that it's intended to be understood factually and not as myth? And then they would probably say, well, there's no way. Many people, I think, would say, well, that's a silly question because these, we can't have a virgin birth. I can't intend to. So that really the underlying presupposition is that can't happen, and that's driving, that's driving the, the judgments about it. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, Paul is quite clear that, uh, that we're not to understand the supernatural events in the gospel as simply a wish fulfillment or as desires. Uh, in verse 14, he said, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if the Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so we see that Paul is explicit. You know, if, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, it's, we don't just have a, there's no resurrection faith apart from the resurrection. What are the Gospels? The Gospels are presented as historical narratives. The early church called them the memoirs of the apostles. They were seen as the historical recollections of what Jesus said and did. And if you read even the introduction to Luke's Gospel, Luke 1, 1 to 4, he, ex he explains how he, did, how he did his history. He said, you know, I, this, these things, these traditions, were, these traditions and stories about Jesus were, were, were uh, preserved by eyewitnesses that were then passed on to us. And so he explains, and I've invested, investigated everything carefully from the beginning. I'm now presenting it to you. And so there's this his it's the kind of introduction you would have to a historical narrative. It's important to understand, too, that the Gospels are selective, translated, and edited accounts, right? Under, we believe, as Christians, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the writers of the Gospels selected what to include. When they did that, they also selected stories not to collude, include. When they, they translated things, sometimes they translated things slightly differently. Um, and just to illustrate this, if you look at the, the verses given there, Luke 11, 20 and Matthew 12, 28, it's clear that Matthew and Luke are both reporting the same story. In one of those, uh, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If the other, and the other one, he says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the, the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Well, the question arises, you know, which of these, did he say the words that are written in Luke's gospel, or did he say the words that are written in Matthew's gospel? And hear me to the end now. Shocking statement. He didn't say either one, right? Because both gospels are written in Greek. Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. They're both giving us a translation of what he actually said. One of them is a more literal word-for-word -word translation. Probably in Jesus' Aramaic and Jewish first century setting, he used the idiom finger of God, which would have been understood to refer to God's spirit, his power, and so on. And the another, in another translation, we could say one of them is the New American Standard word-for-word -word type translation of Jesus' teaching. The other one is the more New Living or NIV translation, giving us more of the meaning. And we, we understand that that doesn't take away that both of them are accurately conveying, one of them more in a literal sense, one of them getting at the root meaning of what Jesus actually said. I have done a lot of ministry in other languages and settings. I spent, lived in China for a while and worked with a Chinese church here in Louisville for about six years. And there's all kinds of potential misunderstandings based on translation, if you do more literal or more meaning for meaning. And in Chinese, one greeting that just means like English, what's up? is, have you eaten? Nichilama. And when the pastor, my wife didn't have the background in Chinese, working with Chinese that I did, when the past Chinese pastor called our home, we were newly married, and she, he goes, have you eaten? She's, you know, is he asking us to eat? Does he want to come here? What's going on here? Why is he talking about eating, you know? And I'm like, that's just a greeting in Chinese, right? So if I were reporting that instant, I could say the pastor called and just wanted to see how, how my wife was doing, how, you know? That would be more of a meaning translation, right? Or I could say, Pastor Collins said, ask my wife, had she eaten? You know, if you could see how if you didn't understand that idiom, that could lead to confusion and why I might choose to translate it uh, in a less than literal way. It's important to understand that the Gospels are literary works. Um, you know, Luke didn't just, uh, he didn't be like, oh, I feel the Holy Spirit coming on me. Here it comes. You know, and they'd be like, let's see what, let's see what the Word of God says now, right? Right? Luke, is, Luke is a person that God used his talents, his gifts, to his mind to write his gospel and to structure it in a very clear and organized way. It's a literary whole. It's a literary work. It's in, it, the, the verses in Scripture are not lightning bolts from heaven. That we just, it's good to memorize Scripture, but if you just memorize Scripture without considering the context, you, know, um, you say, well, Scripture says, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. So I'm only going to witness to Jews. You know, you memorize some of the, the things in Mark's gospel. It says, and then Jesus told them to go away and tell no one. So that's why I don't share my faith on campus, right? We understand we have to read those things within, within the structure of the whole gospel. There's a reason that Mark has a, this pattern of Jesus telling people over and over. I believe it actually happened. But why does Mark choose to emphasize it in his gospel? Why does he highlight it? There's a reason. There's a purpose. And he, he's given us a structure so that we can understand that. Here's something I'd encourage you, if you have a pen, to write on your paper. When you're dealing with historical narrative, and specifically we're talking about the narrative of the Gospels, we need to answer this question as we seek to preach and teach from the Gospels. I, Matthew, or I, Mark, or I, Luke, I, whoever the author is, I, the author of Second Chronicles, I, the author of this historical narrative, have written this story about whatever. And choose any of the stories in the Gospels because, right, we have to seek to answer the question. Not only teaching and preaching the Gospels is not simply just recounting the details in the Gospels, but is, is saying this inspired author, Mark, has told us the story about Jesus as the, inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us this. What does he want us to learn? And um, 
just an example of how neglecting that, neglecting the literary clues and the, the teaching of, 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 the, of the, the clues that the gospel authors give us can, can lead to uh, confusion. We had a, a gentleman who preached here in our chapel a number of years ago, and he was dealing with the passage in, in Mark where Jesus curses the fig tree and then he goes into the temple and cleanses the temple and turns things over. And then he goes back out and the, fig tree, the disciples notice the fig tree is withered. So he read this story and he said, well, we're not going to talk about the fig tree. Let's just focus on what Jesus does in the temple. Well, this is neglecting the structure of Mark. Mark has a pattern. Those who study Mark note that he, he does these things called Mark and sandwiches, where he'll, he'll take two stories and he'll sandwich one up in the other one. And he intends for them to help explain each other. And so Mark has split the story. He could have just reported the cursing of the fig tree all at once. He could have just cursed the fig tree, and later they noticed it withered. Now going on to the temple cleansing, right? But he didn't. He, he, he has those as interpreting each other and showing us how the, the cursing of the fig tree is a symbolic, acted-out parable that's saying the same thing as Jesus' cleansing of the temple, which is symbolic of his judgment and, uh, and God's, God, the divine judgment upon uh, the Jewish rejection of Jesus as Messiah and the, the state of the nation at that time. So if we neglect those literate, and Mark does this over and over again in this gospel. So in other words, for someone to say, forget the, I think if Mark had been there, it'd be like, oh, you know, no, you know, that I, the reason I structured my gospel to show you how to understand those things are mutually informing of each other. And we, we don't want to neglect that. Of course, we believe as Christians that the Bible, the, the Gospels, are the inspired and errant Word of God. They're God-breathed in the way that Jesus presented His teaching and the way that the Gospels and the letters of the Apostles present this teaching as it's authoritative and it's to be viewed. So while Luke wrote a Gospel, Matthew wrote a Gospel, Mark wrote a Gospel, and a human author sat there and penned it, we believe that God preserved it from all error and is, uh, is to be a guide and a teaching for us today. And we, we could take a whole, you know, whole day to talk about inerrancy and how do we, why do we really believe the scriptures are God's word and without error, but because this session is not dealing with that in detail, we're just going to have to move on to talk about the structures, purposes, and themes of the gospel. You look on page two, you look on page two, and you can see um, we're going to begin by looking at Matthew. And again, the role, we're, we're getting at this question, why do the gospel authors present Jesus differently, by, by looking at how they're writing why they're writing, what they're doing to understand them, why we might have particular differences. First of all, we look at Matthew's structure, and you may have noticed, never noticed before, but there's a very distinct alternation in Matthew between narrative, you know, Jesus said this, he, Jesus went here, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, he went here, he did this, he did this, and long teaching sections where Jesus is teaching. And so if you look, uh, laid out on your sheet there, about a third of the way down, narrative, chapters 1 through 4. Teaching 5 to 7, narrative 8 to 9, teaching 10, narrative 11 through 12, teaching 13. And then if you look uh, down below that, you can see how each one of the teaching sections is wrapped up in a very stereotyped way, very repeated again and again. And it happened when Jesus had finished saying these things that, blah, 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 blah. You're like, so you can begin to see the structure that Matthew is giving us to his gospel. He's not, his stories from Jesus are not just pearls on a string, right? Just keep stringing them on, right? that are unrelated. There's a structure and a purpose to what he's doing. And one reason we have to have these repeated summary statements and things like that, we remember that the oldest manuscripts of, of the Gospels of the New Testament have no word divisions, they have no periods, they have no sentences, divisions, paragraphs, they have uh, verse divisions that we have now were added in the 1500s. 
chapter divisions that we have now were added a thousand or more than a thousand years. So when the original readers, the original hearers are hearing this gospel, it's things like this, these repeated elements that help us understand the structure of the, of the literary work. Okay? If you look down beneath there under chapters and titles, about two-thirds of the way down, I've given a, a different title for each one of the sections within Matthew's gospel. Understanding it's important to realize, for example, when you're in chapter 10, he's giving us, he's grouped together Jesus' teaching on mission and discipleship, and he's taking that section of the text to teach us on that. Chapter 24 to 25, again, another example, is where Jesus is teaching on the end times, the coming kingdom. An illustration of how not, not recognizing this can lead to misinterpretation. I heard a sermon once in my parents' home church from Matthew 25, one of the parable of, of the talents, where the, the owner goes away and he leaves a certain amount of talents with different people and he comes back. And, and the, the sermon was, was given um, to teach on tithing and financial stewardship. But if you look and, and you think, well, he's, he's dealing with money and they're responsible with money, so isn't that, isn't that a valid? doesn't seem to be valid. But it, does that really get at, at, at why Matthew wants us to understand Jesus told this parable? What, you know, here's Matthew. Matthew, we, we can't be on the hillside with Jesus. We can't be there. Anymore. But Matthew can tell us what Jesus said and can tell us why it's important. And, and Matthew has told us that after Jesus talked about the end times in chapter 24, he told a number of parables to illustrate, you know, over and over again in Matthew 24, we have to be careful, we have to watch, we have to watch, we have to be on guard because Jesus... Well, what does that mean to watch? It doesn't mean creating a chart that fills this whole wall about the particular dates and months when Christ will return or, or uh, you know, speculating who the Antichrist is. What it means to watch, the parables tell us, is to be faithful disciples of Christ so that when he returns, we'll hear the words, well done, a good and faithful servant. And so one of the parables, what do you do if the master returns before you expect? What do you do if the master, if the Lord returns after you expect? What do you do if the, the Lord returns when you completely don't expect it? All the parables are illustrating the end times discourse about being watchful and waiting and being aware when the Lord will come. And so if we don't see the structure, you know, uh, of what Matthew's doing there, we won't understand. Well, why does he tell us all these other, why does he tell us these parables that other gospels don't? Well, because they've fit in with an emphasis that Matthew wants to make in his gospel, and so uh, that's why he's reported them. The bottom of page two, we see some of the distinctives, again, of Matthew's gospel, a topical and orderly arrangement. He takes Jesus' teaching, and he arranges it more by topic than chronological. Let's deal with all the things about church order, and let's deal with all the things about mission and discipleship. Let's deal with, let's, let's, let's handle Jesus' parables all at once. So he groups well, not all, always at once, but in like chapter 13, he'll group seven parables there. In chapter 23, he groups seven woes against the scribes and, and Pharisees, the top of page 3. Also, something else in Matthew is the significance, uh, other significant numbers. We're on the top of page 3b, other significant numbers. Matthew, it appears, as we hear, hear the gospel, it appears that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so some of his concerns and the ways he presents Jesus differently are dictated by the audience that he's writing to. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're on your campus and you hear your, your roommate talking to someone. And they say, oh, uh, you know, that's the, um, the Honeycutt Campus Center. That's the building that has a, the post office in it. And that's the building that has... And, and, and you, would, you would, even though you didn't know who they were talking to, you're saying they're not talking to someone on campus, right? Because everyone on campus knows the post office is in the Honeycutt Campus. So when we read, hear Matthew, and Matthew 
gives Hebrew words and he doesn't translate them, or he, 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 he these, this sort of, the concerns about Jesus being a descendant of Abraham and David, and, and the, the, just the, the incidental comments, that it appears that, that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience who would have some slightly different concerns from a Gentile audience, and one way that shows up is, is in his use of numbers. For example, in Matthew's genealogy, he reports, you know, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile, Jesus. They're like, what's the deal with 14? You know, that's kind of interesting. But, but in, in, in uh, Jewish thinking, you know, all words have numerical value. And the, the number, the name David has the numerical value of 14. Jesus here is presented. I mean, the purpose of the genealogy is Jesus is the promised Messiah, son of David. And so while that, I mean, we get the point whether we understand the 14 or not. But to the original reader who was Jewish, it'd sort of be like having the PowerPoint with the Son of David flashing in the background. Okay, they didn't have technology, but they that would do that. But they had uh, they could do things like this: arrange, show fourteen, fourteen, fourteen. Jesus is the Son of David. He is the promised Messiah. Mark's gospel, written to Gentiles, um, apparently doesn't even doesn't even have a genealogy to begin with, right? To the Gentile audience, undoubtedly, we as Gentiles, it's important to us that Jesus is descended from David. That Jesus is. De- his, according to his human nature, descended from David, descended from Abraham. But um, it's not, it, it helps us understand why Matthew would highlight and present that information while Mark might not. Okay? Uh, Matthew's account is concise. You say, well, hold on, Matthew's 28 chapters and Mark is 16. How is that concise? But if you look at when Matthew tells the same story as Mark, he cuts down the details. He, he just he chops it down. Uh, so it's interesting if you compare, because most, most scholars agree that Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke used Mark as one of their sources. And so when Matthew and, Mar- Matthew and Luke retell the same story as Mark, they edit it, Matthew especially, chopping it down, because he's got lots more of information he wants to include, and so he doesn't want to. So that's why sometimes you find that, that disparity of details, is Matthew has really edited it down so that he can fit everything in else that he wants to say. Of course, we already noted the Jewish character of the gospel. Some other ways we pick this up, Jewish customs are unexplained. For example, hand washing, phylacteries, those little boxes you wear on your head and your hands full of scripture to show that you're a devout Jew, the straining out of gnats, whitewashed graves, Hebrew terms untranslated. Jesus in the, in the gospel of Matthew frequently speaks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens rather than the kingdom of God. Now, why is that? Is that because, I mean, which one did Jesus say? Did he say basilia to uranu, right, or ton uranon, if it's plural? Or did he say basilia to that? Did, did he say what Matthew says, kingdom of, of the heavens, or did he say the kingdom of God? Well, you know, I'm going to, again, hear me to the end. Don't leave after I say he didn't say either one, right, because they're both in Greek. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and he probably most likely at a literal level said kingdom of the heavens, considering his first century Jewish context, and Jews... Um, in the first century Judaism, there was a real tendency to try to avoid saying God's name as a sign of, of respect to God. You would, you would round, say it in a roundabout way, you know, the, the power in heaven or the heavens. There was a way of showing respect to God by, by speaking about him in an indirect way rather than saying God. And even when I was in college, I had a room, Jewish roommate, um, or maybe this was a Jewish guy I worked with on a project. I'm trying to remember. But I remember specifically one Jewish person I was working with in college, and he, when he wrote a paper and he used the term God, he would not write out the word God. He, could, he would write G and then a dash for the O and then a D because for him it seemed disrespectful 
to write the name of God completely. He, he wanted to show some, in his thinking, it was reverent for him to, to do that. And so we see uh, in, the, in, in Matthew's gospel, apparently, cons- uh, again, writing to Jews, accurately reflect, reflecting the Jewish context where Jesus preached in, preserving that. Okay, theological emphases or themes in Matthew. One is uh, the fulfillment quotations. There are lots of quotations in Matthew about the Old Testament being fulfilled. Uh, many, you know, this, this fulfilled, the scripture was written, this fulfilled. And some of those, I think, are referred to specific propositional revelation, like that, that uh, specific propositional predictions. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know, we think of Isaiah 53 as another example of a specific, that the Messiah would die and suffer and bear the sins of people. I think that only applies to Jesus. But Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, has a much broader view of fulfillment than, than maybe we do. Because he's looking not only at specific predictions that are fulfilled in Jesus, but Matthew looks at all of Israel's prior history anticipating and climaxing in Jesus. And if we don't understand that, we won't understand what he's doing in some of the passages, one of the, one of the ones that's often misunderstood in Matthew 2.15. Uh, Jesus, uh, is, his life is threatened by Herod, and so Joseph and Mary take Jesus and they go down to Egypt, right, to, to, and wait until King Herod, Herod the Great dies, and then they come back. And it says, this fulfilled what was written in the scripture, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, I think most Christians, uh, when they read that, they think, if I look in the Old Testament, in Hosea 11.1, 1, that's where it says it is. I'm going to be reading Hosea, and it's going to say, I'm going to send my Messiah, and for a while I'll have to go to Egypt, and then out of Egypt I'll call my son. Right? But the problem is, if you flip back to Hosea 11.1, 1, it's, uh, it's, it's talking about the exodus in Egypt, and then it goes on to say, out of Egypt I call my son, but then he went after the Baals, and whatever. you're like, whoa, went after the Baals? That's not Jesus, right? Talking about worshiping pagan God. What's going on? Right? And if you take a, re- a religion class at a secular university, someone I've, I've, I've encountered via email, um, difficulty that some people face with this where their religion professor will cite something like this and say, look, at, see, Matthew's just quoting scripture haphazardly. This is, this is not respecting the Old Testament. And students without any framework will be like, you know, they won't know what to do with that. But you have to realize that in Hosea, he's quoting the Exodus to refer to a later exile, right? In Hosea's mind, in the prophetic mind, the, 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 uh, the, the slavery in Egypt and God's deliverance out of slavery anticipated what God would do later in the Assyrian Babylonian exile, which anticipated what would come later climactically in Christ. And so Matthew's saying, you know how, this is, I, this is what Matthew's saying, I believe. You know how when our ancestors went down into Egypt, it looked like God's promises would fail because they were out of the promised land, they were all in slavery. God's promises didn't fail. They were brought up out of Egypt. God, God kept his promises. You know, in the Babylonian exile, it looked like God's promises failed. Same thing looks like how, how, would, how would the people fulfill the purposes of God? There's no, there's no, they're not in the land. How will the Davidic Messiah come? God fulfilled his promises. Now here's the Messiah. Certainly things are going to go right now. He has to run away to Egypt because the king of the Jews is trying to kill him. The, the Jew, oddly enough, the Jewish king is trying to exterminate the Messiah while pagan astrologers are making a journey of the lifetime to come worship him. You know, it's a, con- it's a huge guy. And, 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 and Matthew's saying, it looked like God's promises were going to fail. So Matthew, while I believe Matthew thought there were specific predictions that were only fulfilled in Jesus, 
born in Bethlehem, and other, Micah five one, Micah chapter five is. But he also is looking at all of Israel's history as itself prophetic. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand why why he quotes these texts differently and does this. And I sometimes will give the illustration to students in my class who became. I say, who in here became a believer when they're twenty or older? And you know, a few people. I say, okay, when you were ten years old, were you thinking God moved? is having me move to this city so that I will meet this person so then I'll hear the gospel? No. But when you became a believer, you looked back through the grid of your life and you saw how all of history was in, all your previous history was anticipating what God was going to do in your life when you became a believer. And that's kind of what Matthew, he's looking back through all of Israel. He's saying, do you see how all of history is anticipating and climaxing in the coming of the Messiah? And so I think when you, when you see that, and you understand how he's trying to show the Jewish nation how this is the Messiah who's, who's brought the, the purposes of God, all of what God's doing in history for us. Then it makes sense. Some of the initially what might appear more difficult text gain a, a, a deeper meaning. Uh, point B on the bottom of three, Matthew frequently uses it is written, setting off his, his scriptural quotations. And as C, I've already said, he has many additional quotations from the Old Testament. He cites scripture at least 57 times as opposed to Mark's 30. And they're, they're more distinctly noted with things like this fulfilled the scripture which was written, or it is written, and so on. Point D on the top of page 4, we find in Matthew uh, both particularism and universalism. And what I mean by that is by Matthew, is not universalism in the sense that everyone's going to be saved, but that, that, that God and the work of Jesus is concerned with all people, not just Jews, but with Gentiles. Particularism, there are statements in the gospel about Jesus coming particularly for Jews. And how do we balance those off? So, for example, in Matthew's gospel, we read that 10, 10 5 to 6, Jesus says he came only for the lost sheep of Israel. You know, uh, But then later on in the gospel, point 3, we read uh, at the Great Commission, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, the gospel is to go to all nations. And even if you look at the beginning of the gospel, in the genealogy, there are four women that are reported, and these women... Uh, that are reported, the ones listed on your sheet here, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, you notice they all come from Gentile backgrounds. And it, at that time, it wasn't normal to report the names of women in genealogy. So it's striking, first of all, that there are women reported in the genealogy. Secondly, that they're Gentile. So even from the beginning of his gospel, Matthew's indicating, yes, this is the son of David, this is the, the promised Messiah, but, but he's for Gentiles too. And who came, like as I mentioned, who came to see him? The Magi, these pagan apparently pagan philosopher, astrologers, court officials came to worship him as the Jewish king rejected him. So there's this tension that Jesus is the promised Messiah for the people of Israel, but he's also for all nations. And I think that finds its resolution, point four, in noting that during Jesus' earthly ministry, when he says, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel, he's really noting how during his earthly ministry prior to his death and resurrection, his ministry is to be focused on the people of Israel. But it's after his death and resurrection that the gospel goes to all the world. As we see is exactly what takes place in Acts, where the disciples take the gospel and they carry it, and it crosses over to all nations. And so we, we have to understand that Matthew, as, write, as a Jew writing to Jews, is concerned to show how those fit together, how the, the, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah for Israel, but he is the Son of God, the Messiah for the whole world. How does that fit together? Matthew shows an interest in ecclesiology. This is the only gospel to use the term church, and he talks about how to deal with some issues of church discipline and structure. And so, uh, uh, again, these particular interests that he has are driving some things he might say or might not say. Christology, 
specifically related to as how he presents Jesus. Point number one on the top of page five. Matthew is concerned with emphasizing Jesus as the son of David. We find in Matthew the term son of David many more times than we do anywhere else in the New Testament. The reason, of course, being, again, to emphasize Jesus' Davidic right as the, as the, as the Messiah, the true son of David who's come. And fascinatingly, those terms, if you, if you do a little concordance search on son of David, many times in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is called the son of David, it's in the midst of some sort of healing narrative. There's something with Jesus bringing healing and restoration and life to what is broken that's associated with him being the Davidic Messiah, the son of David. Jesus is presented as superior to the temple, obviously important for people coming from a Jewish background trying to figure out how the temple and sacrifices and everything fit with this person who's now the Messiah. Jesus is presented as the, the interpreter and fulfiller of the law. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to himself fulfill it. Number four, Jesus, this is a fascinating point that Luke Timothy Johnson brought out for me. Jesus is always addressed as Lord by his disciples, those who are healed and those coming to faith. But point five, Jesus is always addressed as teacher or rabbi by outsiders, including Judas. And so it's, uh, it's fascinating to see that even in the way that Matthew reports the way people talk to Jesus, he's trying to make a point, isn't he, that if you just think Jesus is a rabbi or a teacher, your understanding of him is inadequate. He is Lord. Does that mean that someone who rejected, let's say someone who was a false disciple, never called Jesus Lord? Well, I think it's, it's very likely that someone probably did call Jesus Lord who was a false disciple. Why didn't Matthew report it? Matthew's purpose is selective, and he didn't want to report the exception to the rule, but he's, he's through, report, through his selective reporting, through his editing, he's trying to make a point to us, right? He's not denying that someone could never call Jesus Lord who's not a true disciple, but he's wanting to emphasize being a true disciple means calling Jesus Lord, not just teacher. As we mentioned already, Matthew has a real interest in eschatology. You can notice eschatology, the, the study of last things, he has a real interest in saying reporting what Jesus said about end times. If you compare, he has 97 verses in his gospel related to end times things uh, compared with only 37 in Mark and a similar section, size section in Luke. Um, what we're going to do right now, because we have limited time and we have 20 minutes left, roughly, uh, we, uh, let's rehash what we've done. We've, we've stepped back and said we're, we're, we're not going to directly answer the question like in this particular verse, why does Jesus do this here and he does this over here? Or why is this story reported here and this here? We're going to step back and get the big picture of what the Gospels are trying to do. What, what really the Gospels are and what they're trying to do and then understanding the particular structure, the themes and emphases of the Gospels explain to us why Jesus is presented one way or the other, why we have some details here that we don't have there, or why things are apparently, quote, left out here that are included there. And so we've done that so far for Matthew, just to try to get a big picture and see how important it is to look at the structure of the Gospel as we seek to interpret the particular passage. It's just my little flag I have to wave for a moment because I teach hermeneutics, interpreting the Bible. So, Interpreting historical narrative is one of the most tricky and difficult things to do because people come to the narrative and it's sort of like, what does this make me think of? You know, I read that detail and that detail. And it seems almost valid because it seems like the detail is kind of support. But if you don't look at what, answering the question, I, Matthew, am telling you this story about Jesus. 
because, right? Why, and, you, and then not just say, well, I think it's this, I think it's that, I think it's that. Well, maybe those are all right, right? But we put our finger on particular things in the text and say, do you see how Matthew structured, do you see these comments he makes as the editor to let us know why he's telling us about Jesus? So that then we seek to really, really in other words, when we teach the Bible, we don't just want to repeat the details of the Bible and slap our meaning on it, but we want the inspired author of Scripture, Matthew, Luke, Mark. We want to teach so that if they were sitting there in the room and they were listening to us and we went up afterwards and said, I just taught that section of Scripture that you wrote. Did I accurately convey the meaning about what you were wanting to teach about Jesus or about discipleship? Is that what you were wanting to teach with that story that, that, per, that, then that, that Matthew, Mark, Luke would say, yes. That is what I was wanting to teach with that story. That's what, we're, that's what we're seeking to do. I'll make an advertisement for one of the best little books to think about this that I've ever read. And I'm sure we have it in our bookstore. It's by Robert Stein, A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible. Robert Stein, S-T-E-I-N. He just lays his finger on getting at the meaning of the text. That's the, that's the critical thing in our day, isn't it? that we don't want to be teaching our opinions or just reflections that we have on the Scripture, but we want to teach the real meaning of the Scripture. And not only the meaning, but we want to understand the meaning and then we want to, and when we want to translate it into application that's valid for today so, so that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a legitimate application of the text. Okay, that's my little flag waving on hermeneutics. We're going to pause for a second. We have 17 minutes left. I want to give you a chance to I've already warned you, there's no way we're going to get through the whole handout. You have le- we have left Mark, Luke, and John. We'll probably get through Mark, maybe a little bit of Luke. And we'll see again how the structure and emphases of the particular gospel authors is important to note to interpret the text correctly. To respect you, I need to let you get to your next session. And thank you for coming, and we'll, uh, we'll see you guys uh, around. <laughs>